Man, it is a blessing to worship with you guys. Uh, my name's Keith. I'm one of the elders here. Um, in my day job, I'm a professor. Um, we are finishing up 1 John today. Uh, so it's been a, a good journey. Um, I, hopefully, I ask all of the guys who'd, who'd done a part of the preaching through 1 John uh, to answer the question, sort of, what was your big takeaway from 1 John? And I don't know if you noticed those up there before the service, but uh, it was really interesting sort of getting the take of, say, Michael Powell or Scott LeGraff about what is that big takeaway? Um, but I have a little bit of a disclaimer here. Um, so this is, this is the list. Um, may, what if we played those afterwards for, for, those, for those that didn't read ahead? You can do the assignment afterwards. But I have a little bit of a disclaimer. Um, my, uh, what is this, eight weeks in 1 John has been colored by a large event. Uh, this event, March 13th, this is Abraham John. And so it has been a delight, but it has really sort of shaped the way I've read this, this passage. And so I have sort of my, my big take-homes from this. Uh, there are two of them. The first one, that comes from chapter 3. It said, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. And when you get to be a father or a parent, and, and you see a baby come into the world, and it's, and it's your baby, and, and there's the fear of it belonging to you, and there's the joy of, of life and this beautiful, beautiful life. And for some reason, we don't feel any guilt at all. It's done nothing, and yet we rejoice because it is good, because it is fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's what God is telling us, what love he's lavished on us. And I really see that as a central piece of 1 John. And, and sort of there's a conclusion also. This is a verse from chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another for love comes from God. We are loved, we are counted as children, and he invites us to love as he has loved. And before we hop into the, the scripture, we'll start in 1 John 5, 13. I just want to make this, this point. God's word should change us. We shouldn't be able to study an entire letter written that is inspired by God without it doing something affecting who we are and how we think. Because uh, <clears throat> oh, this, is, this is the hypothetical audience involvement. Raise your hand if you believe that everything you think and do is flawless. Good. Good. Everybody got, Zach, I was worried. I was worried you were going to have to go do some quick intervention. <laughs> Right? And so if, if we recognize that our understandings are imperfect and we come up to the word of God, we ought to be prepared. We ought to be prepared for God's word to change us. We ought to be inviting, wanting God's word to change it. It says it this way in Hebrews. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. It can be painful to come up to the flawless word of God and to have it reveal, my understanding isn't right. It, it separates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. My hope 
for myself, for my family, and for you is that we would come to God's word ready to change, ready to be changed in our understanding, in our action, ready to receive the abundant life that the Lord has for us. So with that as the backdrop, let's, let's hop in to uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. We're going to be doing 13 through the end of the book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And I think, I think what, what I really want to notice there is this, this phrase, it sort of talks about the point of the whole book. Notice that phrase, that you may know. In fact, uh, that you may know, there, there's uh, a piece, a refrain, this is how we know. I don't know if you've noticed it going through 1 John. It shows up nine times in 1 John, nowhere else in the whole Bible. Uh, this is how we know. John is really concerned with us knowing. And it's interesting here because it says, this is how we know uh, that we are the children of God. And, there's, and, and he is constantly changing his answer. I don't know if you've noticed this going through 1 John. Uh, though we walk in the light, he says in one place, we obey his word. It says we love one another. It says that we stay steadfast in the community of faith. It says we enjoy his Holy Spirit. This is how we know we're enjoying this eternal life. Okay? But I think, I think the order is very important here. Notice, notice what's there. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So how does one become a child of God? One believes in the name of Jesus Christ. One, uh, I'm, I'm told that word is a, a very rich word, that believe. One puts weight in, puts trust in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then all of the things that John is talking about is what the benefit should be, what it should look like to live as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Here, notice, he's talking about a benefit of living as a son or daughter of the Most High God. And that benefit is eternal life, life with him. And so I, I think there's a really important, big, overarching point that we should see from 1 John. And um, this is... This is it. John intends to give us knowledge and confidence. Knowledge and confidence. He writes this that we can know, but sometimes actually exactly the opposite happens. Because of sort of our mindset, we can sort of say, oh, gee, he's saying everyone, this is how we know that we're children of God. We, we live as Jesus did. And we said, well, I, I sure am not perfect. And so... Somehow we can get tripped up on the knowledge and lose the confidence that he invites us to. He's writing this so that we can have confidence that we are his. We can have confidence that we are children. And I think children is a, the exact right word, and John uses it again and again for this reason. Because children know they belong. These are my children, Abraham, John on the left, and that's, that's Amelia on the right. Children know they belong, right? If Amelia came in here, she would know I was her dad and you aren't. Sorry, right? I mean, she knows. Now, 
does she have a list? Does she have like a checkpoint? Well, these 14 things, I said, you know, I've checked the DNA strand. No, but she knows she's mine. She knows she belongs, right? She has the safety of belonging. And I submit to you that John is not writing in the era of the star test. And, you know, well, how are we going to know if kids are ready to graduate high school? I got a great idea. Let's make a 23-page checklist. We could call it something cool, Zach. The Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills. We'll call it TEKS for short. Um, and if you check every box, you're ready to graduate. Well, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but that's not the way you become a child of God. That's not what it means to be a son or a daughter, right? If you ask a five-year-old, you know, how do you know Danny Combs is your dad? What are they going to say? They're going to say, well, you know, I went down to the courthouse because I was kind of skeptical. <laughs> no! Maybe, you know, I mean, you're probably going to get a kind of a cheesy answer. He tucks me in at night. Wow. Yeah, well, if Danny Combs tucks you in, does that mean he's your kid? Well, not sort of rationalistically, but yeah, that's a pretty good indicator. You're probably Danny Combs' kid, right? Um, maybe my daughter in a few years will say, Daddy dances with me. I hope she does. Yeah, because she knows she's my kid. That doesn't mean there's some silly list somewhere. That means you need to know that you are the Lord's child. You need to know that you are treasured and enjoyed. That is John's intent. You need to know and you need to have confidence that you are the Lord's. And he continues with that theme of confidence. Um, let's go on to... Um, Let's go on to chapter, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So uh, I want you to sort of notice what's happening there. We have this confidence to do what? To approach God. Right? What would make a parent happier than anything else? If their children run to them. That's what you want. That's what God wants. We have this confidence to run to God. He invites us to ask things of him. Right? That's what the confidence is. He invites us to approach him. And he actually enjoys it when we do. So again, I think children is just a perfect metaphor because, uh, think about that, children ask for stuff, right? I was, so I was writing this, and I decided I'm, gonna, I'm just going to play a game with myself. The morning I'm about to preach, I'm just going to start counting how many things Amelia asks me for. It started with milk, and then I had, the next one was Humpty Dumpty. And it turns out I had to have my wife translate. She wanted the Humpty Dumpty book, of course, right? I mean, she is not shy about asking. And have you noticed this? Children don't worry about whether they deserve it. Number, uh, number three, I think, was yogurt. She wasn't thinking, gee, has my economic output been enough uh, lately, so I deserve yogurt. Um, <laughs> she doesn't worry about whether, you're, whether I'm busy, right? And 
I, I don't know if you've thought about this. Jesus says, unless you come like little children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. I think a part of what he's talking about is, have you noticed, little children are the only ones who don't think about the people they love having limits, right? Even your best friend now, you know if you ask a lot of them, they're busy, right? And so you don't want to ask too much. And they're cash-strapped too. So if you're a little short on cash, well, you've got to be a little considerate, right? Well, not a kid, right? Daddy has everything. That's how you should approach God, because guess what? He has everything, right? Your heavenly Father is not too busy for you. It's one of the perks of being infinite. He is happy every single time you come to him, right? He has time for you. He has emotional energy for you. He wants you to come, okay? Now, there's an interesting, a sort of a weird thing you can do going back to this passage. Um, I think it's easy for us in this rationalistic mindset to sort of get this backwards. Notice John says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And to sort of get the ask and the his will sort of backwards and say, oh my, am I asking in God's will? I better, you know, I just don't know if I'm getting that right. And I just have sort of a practical observation for you. Notice the way that this usually works with kids is they ask and they figure out God's, well, God's will too, but their parents' will by asking, right? Uh, you know, your, your two-year-old might ask you, you know, she sees mommy's pregnant, and I want to go in mommy's tummy. <laughs> so like, no, no, you had your turn. You were not, <laughs> right? I mean, there's things that, things that hopefully a 10-year-old wouldn't ask because they understand their parents' will, right? And so I would, I would say, you shouldn't approach this in, in the sense of, I'm afraid to ask because it might not be in God's will. God's will is good. God's will is something that he desires you to understand better. And you get there by asking like a son, like a daughter, right? Um, you, you understand his will more and more fully, and you understand the goodness of his will as you mature in asking. Uh, I've heard it said that if we could see as God sees, we would want what God wants. And I fully believe that. If we could see all that God sees, we would ask exactly what is in God's will. And God, in his graciousness, gives us what is good, what is best. But for some reason, he chooses to hold back at times and wait for us to ask. Scripture says you do not have because you do not ask. And there's more to it, but that peace, he wants us to ask. He wants us to come to him to recognize our dependence on him. And he is moved by our prayers. Um, there's something in particular he invites us to ask for in these verses. And, and we see it in verse 16. Uh, so we're invited to come, we're invited to ask, but we're particularly invited to ask for this one thing. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, 
you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. So first off, just sort of an observation. The vast majority of discussions I have had about this passage discuss about specifically what John is saying he's not talking about. Okay, so let's just get that out there and then get on to what he is talking about. Uh, there is a sin that leads to death, and there's, there's been great discussion for years and years. I think the simplest, clearest explanation is actually the best, and that is the sin that leads to death, the sin that leads to spiritual separation from God is a settled rejection of Jesus Christ, a lifelong rejection of Jesus Christ, and of the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. And unfortunately, John is, John is saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not really telling you to, what to do about that. Let's talk about things that don't lead to death, okay? But what he is talking about is he's talking about other sin, all minor things in comparison to the, the lifelong rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord, okay? And what he says is, if a brother or sister commits a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray for him. Now, that should strike you as just a little bit weird on, on one level. Who has the right to forgive sin? Well, usually the one who's been offended, but ultimately God, right? And so, recognize God, last, last verse, sort of the take-home was, God invites us to come to him. God also somehow gives us his authority, right? It's God's to forgive sin, but we're his children, right? And so it's this weird thing. It's this wonderful thing. God invites you and I to pray for people. And then notice what it says there. And God will give them life. God will give them forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that an interesting picture of sonship, of being a daughter, right? I mean, think about this. Um, If your parents own a membership to a country club, did you pay anything? Nope. Do you get in? Yep. It's a good deal, right? Being a child is, is important. Or maybe a better analogy, if your father were a king going to battle, because your heavenly father is, right? Did you mass the troops? Nope. Do you have authority on the battlefield? Yes. Why? It's because of whose kid you are, right? It's because of whose kid you are. And so I think when you see this, you should say, my, that is almost uncomfortable authority. Well, yeah, it's more authority than we have any right to, except that we are children of God. We have access to the Father to pray for forgiveness. And I think there's there's also an interesting corporate aspect here. Notice that this, this can't be done alone, right? So if, a bro- if you see any brother or sister commit a sin, right? So there has to be group involvement. There's a place where it says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Well, why do you suppose that happens? I mean, if I confess my sins to God and pray, I mean, he said he'll forgive me. And yet there's something really special that happens 
when you confess with other believers and when they pray for you and the Lord uses the body, he uses us to do his work of redemption, to participate in his work of redemption. It's a beautiful thing and it's something we are invited into. And you should rejoice. You should rejoice that the Father has given you this authority, this access to intercede on behalf of those you love. Okay, on to eight. Oh, before we go on, that last verse, I didn't, I didn't mention anything about it. Uh, I, maybe strikes you as a little odd that John has to say, all wrongdoing is sin. But remember, John's audience had people that were called Gnostics, that sort of were trying to sort of distort the truth to make it more convenient, more attainable to be godly. And one of the things they did, uh, you might remember back to Scott teaching that first week on 1 John, was they said, well, you know, my spirit is really good, but my body just longs for all these sinful things. So let's just sort of not think about those things as wrong. And what John is just doing is clarifying, look, all wrong things are sin, right? And Jesus' blood is enough for all of that, right? Jesus' forgiveness covers all sin. It's not enough. You don't have to minimize sin. You shouldn't sort of pretend like things are, yeah, kind of, you know, I'm just a worrier. I just don't trust the Almighty God. No. All wrongdoing is sin, and Jesus' blood is enough for all of it. But that's not all. The story gets even better, frankly, in verse 18. Jesus' blood is enough to forgive that sin, but that's not where he leaves his sons and daughters. He says, we know that anyone born of God, there again, born of God, what analogy should you be thinking? That's children, right? That's belonging. That's, that's not a work, right? Being born is, is not something, was well, something my wife worked really hard at. <laughs> Baby Abraham, <laughs> he, he wasn't really pushing very hard, um, Right? Anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And so, what I would say is, it's not just that the Lord gives us his forgiveness. God intends to give his children freedom. God intends to give us power over sin and death. And uh, I think that's, that's really an important thing to see. Uh, I have sort of an analogy for you with that. And, and it's, this, it's this analogy. Um, there are my daughter's feet. Aren't they cute? Um, you may notice something about them. <clears throat> Anybody notice? I believe that sin, when we're talking about sin, you need to think about it this way. Sin is, one, failing to see the designer's intent, and two, failing to trust and obey anyway, right? Uh, you might think my daughter just can't tell right from wrong, and that's why the right shoe is, sorry, right from left, <laughs> and that's why the right shoe is on the left foot. Oh, no, I can hand her the right foot right shoe, and she will not put it on the right foot, because something tells me she doesn't see the designer of the shoe's intent. And so what happens? Well, she reaps the consequences, right? 
they don't stay on very well when they're that way. <laughs> and something tells me if she, could, if, she could, um, if she could tell me, she would say they're not quite as comfortable that direction, right? But have you noticed that these two pieces are involved in sin? One is ultimately not believing that the way our Heavenly Father designed things is right. And then the second part to that is saying, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to go my own way. And so when God gives us the power over sin and death, he gives us freedom from sin and death, usually to me it works this way. Uh, this is just my observation. Usually he gives us the freedom to obey even without understanding, to submit to him. And then over time, he allows me to understand that his way was really, truly best. He undoes the entire, you know, ball of coat hangers that is, that is sin. He allows us to submit. He allows us to trust that he is good. He frees us to obedience. And then he opens our eyes to the fact that obedience was actually better in the first place. But he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in the place of sin. No one born of God continues to sin. This, is, this has been proved really true in my own life. Um, the, the, probably the longest period of sustained sin in my life started uh, at 14 when I got stuck in the cycle of pornography. 14 years old, and I was in sin. Five years until 19. And, and so that, that, those born of God don't continue in sin. Don't be shocked if that is a process. For me, that was a five-year process. And incidentally, when the Lord broke me free, it was by confession it was by confessing my sins to another and having others pray for me. And the pattern there was obedience without exactly understanding the why. And then over time, seeing the goodness of God, rejoicing at the freedom from the bondage of sin. And I felt it. I felt it. But it was hard to sort of put my finger on it until I could get away from the sin by basically blind obedience by obedience to the Lord and look back and see, ah, oh, that's a terrible place. I like being free from sin. If you could see as God sees, you would want exactly what God wants. And I have to tell you, it's pretty sweet telling you about this now. That was 20 years ago this spring. God doesn't leave his children in sin. He wants you free. He wants you whole. Sin is terrible and nasty, and he wants you broken out, and he has the power to do it. He has the power to break you free from sin. And I want to go back to this last verse here. Notice he comes back to this theme. John is all about you feeling like children. We know that we are children of God, not we're second-guessing whether we belong to the Lord. We know that we are children of God. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. For John, there's no middle ground. There is those who have believed in the name of the Son of God, who have given themselves over, and are becoming made more and more in his likeness. 
and there is those who are under the control of the evil one. It is so good to be born again and to become a child of God, to be one who belongs. And so we go on to these last two verses that give sort of a picture, the last two verses of the whole book, they give a picture of what it looks like to belong. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. That's the Father. By being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And so it comes back to that theme again and again and again. God wants us to know him and to abide in him, to be in him. See how it comes up again and again. We know he's given us understanding that we may know him who is true. We need to know him. But the result is abiding. The result is belonging. And we are in him who is true by being in the Son, by resting, realizing we are enjoyed. And it's very hard to abide. It's very hard to sit and rest and really soak in who God is if you don't believe God likes you, that he has chosen you to be his child, that he has called you his own, that he wants you to come to him, that he gives you his authority and that he delights to reveal himself to you. He is the true God. He is eternal life. He is very, very good. Now, I've read this last verse, and I don't know if it struck any of you as sort of odd. It's sort of like, wow, there's this whole book. The first word idols is used is in the last sentence. Um, but I think it makes perfect sense if you think about it this way. What John is saying is, know the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord. Put all your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear children, don't hope in anything else. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is hoping in something other than the thing we are invited to abide in. And what we are invited to abide in is no less than God himself. Let us not hope in anything else. And so I have these parting images for you. God wants us to know Jesus and abide in him. He wants us honestly to sort of sit in his lap, to belong, to belong. And, and the book of 1 John is about belonging to God, knowing that we're his and being transformed into Jesus' image in such a way that we love other children. And that's the point of these pictures. We are to be received as children. We are to know that we're children in such a way that we love others as God has loved us, that we invite others into the family as we have been invited in, and to know this wonderful, almighty God that surpasses wisdom, surpasses knowledge, surpasses every good thing, because he is a good, good father. Will you pray with me? Oh, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. We praise you that your kingdom is coming to earth, that you have called us, that you have invited us, that you have adopted us as sons and daughters, that you have 
given us a spirit of belonging. And we pray that we would live that out, that we would do the hard work of trusting that you love us, trusting that you want us to come to you in prayer, that you want us to abide in you, that you want us to know you well. We thank you so much. We praise you for loving us first. And we bless your name. Amen.